right, let's turn together to the book of Esther. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Esther, and let's look again to Esther chapter 1, where we have spent the last few Sunday evenings in our time together, introducing this book and looking in chapter 1 and laying a foundation for what the Lord has for us. It was a joy to be here last Sunday night. I lived off of last Sunday night for the most of the week, just thinking about the precious opportunity we had not only to open the Word, but to remember the Lord's table together, and just the sweet spirit that was here in this place. There are moments that, that you remember, that stand out in your memory, and last Sunday night was a sweet moment. Every time we gather around the table of the Lord, uh, it's a sweet moment. The church family, I pray that, that you value that and treasure those moments together, and I know that you do. Esther chapter 1, we are now looking into the text, and I want you to direct your attention with me to the end of the chapter. As we look, Esther chapter 1 and verse 20. And the Word of God reads this, Now when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small, and the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mimucan. So then he sent letters, verse 22, to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be the master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Well, this is the word of God. The last time together, we introduced and we're working our way through chapter 1. And just to remind you of our outline points, we saw the royal king introduced to us in verses 1 and 2. This is King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes. In his reign, and its ostentatiousness, its lavishness, is portrayed for us there in verses 1 and 2. And then last time together, we saw, secondly, a royal feast in verses 3 through 9. In fact, more than one royal feast, we saw that King Ahasuerus ordained a few feasts, a total of three in all, and there was a feast for the women as well. And then we left off at point number three, the royal mess. We found ourselves at a royal mess when we saw that King Ahasuerus called as he found his heart merry after days of feasting under the influence of alcohol, decides that he's shown all the men, all the leaders, all the rulers, really everything he has to show them except for his wife. And so he makes his request. We saw that in verses 10 through 12. He requests that the queen come and present herself to those who are present. Verse 10, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. So here we see an accurate picture of really who King Ahasuerus is, his character. Historians show us and remind us that this was a man that was unstable. He was driven by his flesh on a variety of levels. He was unhinged. He could fly off the handle in a, in a moment's notice. In fact, everything that kings are, are told to be, King Ahasuerus is not. As you look at survey the scriptures and see the wisdom and the instruction that is, that is given to kings, as we saw in the reading tonight, it is the glory of a king to search out a matter. It is the glory of a king to, to know truth and to study wisdom. God's kings that he appoints and raises up, their task was to know the law, to know the word of God, and to write out the word of God, to have wisdom, to know how to discern matters, 
to not be unhinged, but to be stable for the people, for the kingdom, to fear the Lord. Well, obviously, this is not a king of the Lord in that sense. This is a pagan king, as we've already seen and already looked at. But we see that this king is, is doing all the things that is unwise for kings to do. For example, in Proverbs 31, verse 4, the mother tells Lemuel, she says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Well, that is exactly the type of king, lest they, oh, that's King Ahasuerus, afflicting, perverting justice, and forgetting truth and forgetting the fear of the Lord, not as if he's ever had it in one sense. We saw in Matthew's gospel a few weeks ago that in the life of King Herod, that in a moment of a similar moment of partying, that his lack of self-control and really just being given over to the flesh cost John the Baptist his life when he had his stepdaughter brought in and his daughter brought in and danced before the men and he promised to give her whatever she wanted and she, guided by her mother, requests the head of John the Baptist. Here's what we're trying to say. A king like Xerxes, a king like Ahasuerus, who has absolute power to those who are under his authority and reign, this is a very frightening prospect. This man is a fool. This man is powerful, but he is unstable. It's frightening to all those who are around him, and we see that as the king gives his response in verses 13 through 15. There's all manner of men that surround him, wise men and eunuchs and others, and they walk on eggshells around him lest he order them to be killed on the spot. Notice the king's response in verse 13 through 15. Then the king said to the wise men, Who were they? Those who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshena, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mimukin, and the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the king, the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. What we find here in this text and really in the book is that it's notable that this is the king. And yet he does nothing without someone else's advice. Now he's not following the, the proverb that it's in the multitude of counselors there is safety. That's technically what these men are, are supposed to be. These are seven wise men who understand the times. They are men who are supposed to be able to give, shed light onto the blind spots, the stress of what it is to reign as a king. That's why this the cabinet, we'd call it a presidential cabinet today. Uh, this is not what he's doing, though. He is very insecure. He needs propping up here. So these men appear on the scene, seven wise men who understand the times, and, and also seven eunuchs who served him, and ultimately their main task is to oversee his harem of women, his wives, 300 plus, who are under his charge. They are eunuchs, they um, are castrated, they are, all threats are removed, so that there is no attempt to try to sustain a heritage and a heirs themselves, or to be improper with the women that they are charged to oversee. These men are to be dedicated and devoted to the king and everything that he asks them to do. These are wise men. These are eunuchs. They are, these are men who understand the times, and yet they tremble and tell the king whatever he 
wants to hear. When Vashti refuses to come, it's beneath her. She is not going to come expose herself as the king commands. Here we have a king who is royally embarrassed. He has basically displayed his power and said, there's nothing I can't do, and there's nothing that I don't have, and there's nothing that, that can't be mine. And his wife will not bid his command after he has so publicly commanded her to come. So he seeks the counsel of these wise men. Notice their exaggeration. In fact, they're manipulating him. They're massaging his ego. Verse 16, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, O king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. What are they saying here? You are right. You are right to be upset. This is a grave injustice. This is a gross iniquity. We have a, we have a global crisis here, king. Notice verse 17, for the queen's behavior will become known to all women. It, you're right, king. It's so bad that all of our wives will find out about such things and they will not obey their husbands. So they will despise, the text says, their husbands in their eyes when they find out the report. Well, these are the wise men of the king, and we find out that in one sense they are wise indeed. They are wise to know how to walk around him lest they lose their lives, but they are not the men that this king needs. They know how to maintain job security. You, you know these people. They tell the manager whatever he wants to hear. Uh, we have all kind of names for them, and we're not going to unpack those here tonight. But these are those guys. These are those people. We could say essentially they not only know how to maintain their job security, but they're just yes men. They want to, these are deep-rooted politicians. They, they don't want to lose their job. They want to stay forever. Now, I'm not trying to talk down about all politicians, but we get the idea. They are self-preserving and desire to stay around for a few more days. So they exaggerate the offense, and he exaggerates beyond all bounds the offense that Vashti has done, when in fact she has done absolutely nothing wrong. In other words, they come to him and, and, and amplify and blow up this great distress. Notice, in, as we just read, they, they say all women will go on strike. They will be emboldened. They will not obey their husbands. Disorder will abound. So they're placating this petty tyrant. You know, I was thinking... This isn't too far removed from even headlines today. We've seen in headlines today one petty tyrant going to meet another petty tyrant uh, from North Korea to Russia. And, don't, you know, lest we think, um, you know, LeGrand, this is all just nice and neatly packed here in the Old Testament. No, it's not. No, it's not. Every other week there's a headline where uh, a top official in, in the main People's Republic of China has gone missing. And they say, well, where is that general? Well, we all can safely assume that he cross-grained Xi Jinping, and I probably should even say that on the, on the, uh, we're on the internet, but whatever, you know, and he just kills, you know, if they don't tell him exactly what he wants to hear, he literally kills them. Same thing with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. So this, this stuff is not, it's not too far removed from the headlines even today. Petty kings and petty tyrants are all around. Well, listen, that leads to a royal order as we round out chapter one. A royal order in verses 19 through 20. Here the king gives a decree. And they give instruction on what it should be. If it pleases the king, let a royal order, let a royal decree go out from him. And let it be recorded in the laws, notice this famous phrase, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, or the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
Now when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all the empire, O king, for it is great. Notice how they're just constantly reminding him, uh, massaging his ego. When, when it is known, all wives uh, will honor their husbands, both great and small. I'm not sure what that means. And then, <laughs> the great and small part. And then, and then the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mimucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now, did you notice the addition to the decree? Initially, there was the advice of the counselors. But verse 22, that is the addition that each man should be the master in his own house. Let me just remind all of us that President Biden and the governor of Tennessee, no one can make you the master of your own house. Listen, men, that's a God-ordained gift. That's a God-ordained position. And if you have to be told that you're the master of your own, your own house, let me just tell you all tonight the bad news. You're not the master of your own house. You're not the master of your house but by a decree from anyone other than the Lord. And that is something that we follow and love and cherish. And we'll see that in our application in just a few moments, what that actually means for us. To be the master of our own house means to be the chief servant, cook, and bottle washer. In other words, we come to lay down our lives. We come to serve those that God has given to us. We lay down our life for our families, our brides, our children, and those around us just like Christ came to serve, as we see in his example. So this royal, royal order goes forth. Now imagine what the men did with this. I couldn't help but just think for a second, verse 22, the phrase that each man should be the master of his own house. I mean, this is a royal decree from, from, from the king in every tongue, from Ethiopia. Notice, remember how vast his kingdom is in verse 2. It tells us that the kingdom of Ahasuerus is as vast as from India to, to Ethiopia. No doubt these men are putting this on the refrigerator and putting this in prominent places uh, in, in prominent ways. Now, the Persian Empire in, in history was famous for its lawmaking. Maybe you saw that phrase, uh, the phrase, by the law of the Medes and the Persians. In other words, that phrase has come to mean that we can't change what's been done. Uh, in our common vernacular, uh, it's interesting to read books like the book that made your world and other books that talk about the Bible's influence upon Western civilization. But we, we have these phrases that work their way into our everyday language. Now, by the law of the Medes and the Persians, he's not changing his mind. You may have heard that said. Now, we're getting away from all that. We understand that. But for, for 100 plus years, or more than 100 plus years, probably 150, 200 years, the language of Scripture has been in the minds and in the language of our society. Not so anymore. But we see such a phrase. And what this phrase means is that once this law goes out, it will not, it cannot be changed. This will be a theme that we'll see again at the end of the book of Esther. Uh, at the, uh, that we come back to again. Simply it means and denotes something that cannot be altered. Once it's decreed, it, it stands. As for Vashti, she disappears off the scene and we will not see her again. Quite frankly, we don't know what happened to her, but logic would tell us that, that she probably did not survive. And I will not walk through the counts of just irrationality that historians and commentators, extra-biblical commentators, uh, will describe uh, regarding King Ahasuerus' instability. But uh, he killed people right and left. And so I doubt his pride would let him allow her to live with her disobeying his command. 
Well, this is Esther chapter 1. It's interesting, feels more like a history lecture than a sermon. Certainly, it lends itself to that. I'm not trying to be a lecturer. This is my attempt to walk through Old Testament narrative and to give a sermon. But maybe we'll find here some gold nuggets in our application as we round out chapter 1. As we reflect on what's been revealed to us, we've already commented the fact that we are exiles, even now as Christians. Just like Esther and Mordecai will find themselves as as exiles here in this text, I'll remind all of us that we are exiles as well. As the old, old song says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Well, that is the theme, really, of the book of Esther, or excuse me, one of the themes, is the fact that these Jews are not in their homeland. They're in a foreign land. They're under a pagan king. And so it's the theme of exiles. And so we, we sense some of these themes. So number one, Our hopes do not rest in who reigns as king or as president. It doesn't here in this text. And I want to remind us, it doesn't for us as well. And we need to live that way. We need to live in such a way to where uh, those within our families know this, our children know this, our parents know this, our relatives know this, that that our hope is in, in Christ, the God who reigns. Now, we give lip service to that. I get it. But we don't always live that way. We need to remind ourselves that our hopes do not rest in the king Ahasuerus of this world. One commentator says this, exiles do not adore worldly arrogance. Now our world does. Our world, our fallen world, worships displays of power, might, money, the movers and shakers. They're enamorized by the, by the glitterati of this world, the influencers. I just want to kind of remind all of us, as we'll see, as God raises up the orphans, Esther, of this world for his purposes. He uses kings and for his purposes. He uses Xerxes to accomplish his sovereign ends. Listen, our hope is not in who reigns as president or king. Our hope reigns in the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, that's the part where you're supposed to say amen. I get that, I get that. And I'm not, but, but I hope you really hear that. Like, that's the part where we hear that we're like, yeah, amen, Brother LeGrand. We get it, and good, you can if you want to, but that's not necessarily what I'm getting at. Let's live that. That's how our light shines and our salt prevents decay in the tiny corner where we are. Let me remind all of us that our hope is not in elections or politics or the, whoever has the reins of power or parties. In fact, the reins of power are often in the hands, as we see here, of King Ahasuerus. It's in the hands of those who are both incompetent and immoral. So the king Ahasuerus, I'm just going to start saying Xerxes, the Xerxes of this world, easier to say, uh, are, are, are not just reserved for the Old Testament church. Now, I'm not trying to mock our politicians. I met one of our politicians just the other night when uh, we had the opportunity to, to preach at Roan County High School to a gathering of FCA students that were there. And one of our representatives came up to me, and I had the joy of telling him, listen, it's good to meet you. It's a joy to meet you. We pray for you. Our church prays for you by name weekly, and our people call out your name daily. So don't, don't, don't hear what I'm saying as like an all-encompassing statement. But when we look to Washington, we certainly recognize that the reins of power are often in the hands of the incompetent and the immoral. And what of God? How does God respond to the Xerxes of this world and those who reign? Well, Psalm 2, he sits in the heavens and he laughs. And he uses them for his intended purposes and ends. In fact, Scripture says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he'll turn it however he will. So friends, take comfort in that our hopes do not rest in 
the power brokers, the reigns of presidents or kings. Secondly, by way of application, God's people are not in awe of worldly abundance. Here at the text, the writer that God has led to, to show us all his wealth and power and ostentatious display of wealth. Friends, these are not the things we're living for. This is not what drives the engine of our cars or the engines of our marriages or the engines of our homes or the engines, engines of our lives. And if it is, then you need to repent. This is not how Christians live. The song as we sing, we need to sing it again. Remind me next Sunday night. My worth is not in what I own. There, there's much value in singing that to remind us in this American materialistic culture. My worth is not in what I own. Not what I, what I drive or any of those things. First John 2.16, as we look at the wealth of King Ahasuerus, we're reminded that we are exiles. This world is not our home. First John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this world is passing away in the lust of it, but he that does the will of God abides forever. We're going to find that God raises up those who are the off-scouring of the world. Church, we're the off-scouring of the world. I know we don't like to hear that, but as followers of Christ, we are those who do not amplify self, we deny self. We do not glory in self, we, we glory in God. We seek to magnify God, we seek to make Him great, we seek to, to magnify His grace. And so we do not live for this world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He that does the will of God, verse 17, abides forever. The king's Xerxes of this world come and they go. So what about us? Well, we come and go as well, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So for those who find their identity in possessions, the, rea the reality is that they can never really obtain what they desire. In fact, in the words of John D. Rockefeller, when a reporter asked him how much wealth is enough wealth, he said this, just a little more. And that would be what King Ahasuerus would say. King Ahasuerus, are you, are you satisfied? H how many brides is enough? One more, you have 300, 301, 302, 303. How many castles are enough? King, the palace here at Shushan or Susa is just simply one of his many citadels, places that he lives. How many homes do you need? Well, we get the idea. Thirdly, as we make application here, God's people are not afraid of worldly authority. Our hope, number one, is not a worldly authority, but I think we need to nail it down as well that God's people are not afraid of earthly, worldly authority. Now, what do we do when fear does creep into our hearts? When we're threatened with loss. And friends, we'll see that more and more in the, in the coming days. There's just no doubt about it. You can see it happening in our society. Do not think for a second that that's alarmism. Well, go ahead and fix it now, as Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, that God has not only ordained and given us the beautiful, wonderful, eternal gift of salvation, but with that, He's given the promise of suffering. That God, the part of the, the pleasure of salvation, the gift of salvation, is to suffer for His namesake. Oh, what glory that is. Paul says, I exalt in Christ and pursuing Christ and the privilege of getting to suffer for Christ. The early church gloried in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That's amazing. I have to tell myself that. I'm not just preaching at you. I'm preaching at me tonight, church. I've got books on my shelf like Fox's Book of Martyrs and Jesus Freaks and, and Volumes 1, 2, and 3. That they horrible title, by the way. I can't stand it, but full of amazing accounts and 
in history of those who are standing, have stood, are standing, will stand for Christ. So God's people, number three, are not afraid of world authority. In fact, Jesus tells us in the gospel records to fear him who has power over not just body, but over body and soul. So what do we do? How do, we not have, how, how do I live life and not have fear with people who can take my life? Well, the fear of God, we say often around here, removes all lesser fears. Nail down what you're going to fear. Fear God. Fear the greatest fear of all, the mover and shaker, creator of heaven and earth. And the fear and worship of God removes all second dairy fears in your life. Let's be honest. There's a reason why do not fear is the number one command given to us in Scripture. We fear, don't we? We are fearful creatures. We are fragile creatures. Nail down the fear of the Lord. Determine in advance. Be like Daniel. I want to say it carefully. We've got to be careful when we say be like, right? But Daniel purposed in his heart ahead of time what he would do when the moment came. Now, there's value in that. Purpose in your heart ahead of time that you nail down who you fear and who you worship and who you will serve. When the moment comes, your decision's already made. Number four, Esther chapter one, as we've been walking through the last couple of times together, what we really find is that it creates in us a longing for the true king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The, the writer here, Esther, does a great job to go into deep detail explaining to us all that King Ahasuerus is and has. In fact, in the text, it tells us that he's, he's got seven eunuchs, seven advisors. He has feasts, one, the second feast lasting for seven days. This is the only time probably you'll ever hear me talk about numbers in Scripture. But that number seven is continually repeated. And obviously, we know seven in Scripture is meant to be perfection. And one thing is very clear is King Ahasuerus is not perfect. In fact, he disappoints. He falls way short. But it's in reflecting upon the reign of King Ahasuerus and really our king, the longing for a true and greater and better king, we find an interesting parallel and an interesting contrast if we'll take the time to do it. Let me give some examples. Esther 1, again, creates a longing for us as we think about kings and petty tyrants and rulers that, of not only this day in Esther 1, but also in our day. What it does is, is we're sojourners, we're exiles, we're longing for our king, we're looking for him to return. King Ahasuerus here we see is the son of Darius. Jesus, as we make comparison, is the son of God. King Ahasuerus, as the text, only knows exuberance and riches, never knew poverty or humility. Jesus, in contrast to him, tastes both poverty and humility for his people. He has no place, the text tells us, Scripture tells us, to lay his head. In the text, it's very clear that King Ahasuerus views people as a means to his purposes and his end. Specifically, he used power to abuse women. Jesus used his power to honor women. King Ahasuerus spent his life demanding to be served, but Jesus spent his life serving others, ultimately becoming a ransom for many for his bride. King Ahasuerus killed his enemies with armies of millions. In fact, I can't remember if we touched on this, but he's estimated to have over a million soldiers in his in his armies. His kingdom, verse 2, as we touched on, is vast. It reminds us of how vast it is. He achieved all of this 
with his armies of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies. Isaiah 53, as we saw this morning, saving an untold number that only he can count to. Not billions, not trillions, a number that he knows. King Ahasuerus sat on a throne in Susa, but Jesus, here this evening, sits on the throne in heaven. King Ahasuerus is the most powerful man on earth here in our book, in our chapter, but Jesus created the earth, and he sustains it to this very hour. King Ahasuerus is delusional. He believes himself to be a man who became God, as many of these kings and rulers did. Jesus is God, and yet he became a man for us. Philippians chapter 2. King Ahasuerus had many subjects from many nations, but Jesus has joyful worshipers as disciples from every nation, tongue, and tribe that cannot be surpassed. King Ahasuerus had a vast kingdom from India to Ethiopia, but Jesus has a kingdom that has no end. And the zeal of the Lord, as we saw back at Christmas time in Isaiah chapter 6, he is the one who achieves this and performs it. Ahasuerus in our text throws a great banquet for many days. In fact, that, we're supposed to be overwhelmed by this in verses 1 through 9. But Jesus will hold the marriage supper of the Lamb for his bride for, for all eternity, Revelation chapter 19. King Ahasuerus was built, and he, by the way, he himself will serve us. This is our servant king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. King Ahasuerus had a kingdom. And it was built off of forced, heavy taxation, historians tell us. But Jesus' kingdom, in contrast, is built off of the gracious generosity of his people. King Ahasuerus made all bow to him, and yet even now he's bowing to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. King Ahasuerus sought to parade his wife degradingly, but Jesus, in contrast, cherishes his bride, loves his bride, has bought his bride, is cleansing his bride, and Jesus will present his bride spotless, holy, and pure before the Father for all eternity. Amen? This is our King. This is our Lord. We have a true and better King, and we are part of a better kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your sustaining help. And Lord, we thank you that you are our true and greater and better king than any earthly king. Father, every single day we find that our hearts hear the siren songs of this culture, this world. We, we find ourselves growing outdated, arcane, out of step. What's kind of funny about that is, is that we've never been in step. Anytime the church is cool, we need to become concerned. Father, thank you for... The fact that our value is in the, your robes of righteousness, as we sang this evening, his robes for mine. A wonderful exchange. Propitiation one. Father, we find that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our worth is not in what we own, but it's all in the sufficient work of Christ. Father, would you strengthen your people now? Would you equip your people would you help us now as we look ahead to the, the week ahead and find that you have plans for us? Your providence will lead and guide us. Lord, there's people that we need to share the gospel with this week. The time is short. 
the hour is at hand. As we saw this morning, there's a sense of urgency as Jesus turns to his disciples, knowing that his time is short. Father, we recognize that our time is short. We do not know what a day will bring forth. And so we commit ourselves to your hand, and we pray that you would lead us by your Spirit. That you give us wisdom to know the moments and the conversations that we have. Father, we pray that you would help us to live in such a way that, that is truly reflective of, of exiles and sojourners that we are. That we would not live rooted and anchored to this fallen world, but Lord, that we would be stewards of all that you give us to expand your kingdom, looking for your hand of providence as you open up doors of opportunity for us. Father, would you strengthen your church now, even in this place? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, go serve your King.